from CJBT Productions, the team that brings you the Music Halls of Fame podcast, comes the Music History Today daily podcast, where we bring you a quick daily briefing of the musical events, births, and passings that happened on that particular day. So, if you love music and history, then please like, subscribe, and share the Music History Today daily podcast out every day on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast from. The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast, episode number 10. This week, we honor the year 1995 and an inductee of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1995. We make the case for putting Don Cornelius into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a non-performer, and our Spotlight Museum is the Buddy Holly Center in Lubbock, Texas. This podcast celebrates those who have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll also look at the case for certain artists to be inducted into the hall who aren't there yet. Plus, every week we'll discuss a different musical Hall of Fame, Walk of Fame, or Museum and celebrate someone who's been inducted into them. Let's start with our main focus of the podcast, which is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Hall Foundation was established on April 20, 1983. Former Atlantic Records chairman Ahmet Erdogan was the head of the foundation at the time. Three years later, a committee chose Cleveland, Ohio to be the site of the physical location for the museum over Detroit, New York City, Philadelphia, Memphis, and Cincinnati. I say physical location because members have actually been inducted into the hall since 1986 before the building was even opened. Cleveland, Ohio was chosen due to what DJ Alan Freed did to promote rock and roll, including mainstreaming the phrase rock and roll, which was originally black slang for sex, and for holding the first rock and roll concert in Cleveland. Ground was broken for the building on June 7, 1993. The building opened on September 1, 1995 at 1100 Rock and Roll Boulevard on the shore of Lake Erie. The hall gets over 400,000 visitors a year on average. Normal hours of operation are 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., except for Thursdays when they're open until 9 p.m. They're normally open later in the summer months. General admission at the moment is $30, children 6 through 12 are $20, college students, first responders, military members, and Northeast Ohio residents are $25, and kids 5 and under Hall of Fame members and Cleveland residents are free. ID is required to get the discounts. Rockhall.com is their website. That's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M. As with all places these days, due to COVID restrictions, check with the website for updated information and hours. 
The criteria for being inducted into the hall was originally that, quote, artists have to have had released their first record 25 years earlier and have created music whose originality, impact, and influence has changed the course of rock and roll, end quote. That interpretation has been updated in recent decades to include music that rock and roll influenced, like reggae and country and hip-hop, and also youth culture that music has influenced and vice versa, which is why hip-hop artists have been inducted. The different categories that people can be inducted for are, for starters, musical excellence, which is for artists, musicians, songwriters, and producers who have had a dramatic impact on music, Early influencers, who are artists whose music influence rock music and youth culture, like jazz and blues. The Amit Erdogan Award, which is named for famed record executive Amit Erdogan, and goes to a non-performer who's had an impact, like record executives and managers. There's also a category that inducted songs that have influenced music. For instance, the Trog's classic Wild Thang and also Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh's Wooly Bully. Of course, the most popular category is the performers category, which has everyone from Elvis to Tina Turner. The different nominating committees decide who will make the official ballots for that year, and then the ballots are sent to a thousand musicologists, executives, performers, and other experts. The fans also get a chance to vote, with that vote usually being held on the Hall's website. Then from that, the final inductees are chosen. Now then, with all that being said, let's take a look at this week's honoree. The year was 1995. The U.S. inflation rate was at 2.81%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average ended the year at 5,117. Interest rates were at 8.50%. The average cost of a home was $113,150. Average income per year, $35,900. Average monthly rent, $550. Cost of a gallon of gas was $1.09. Stamps cost $0.32, and the average cost of a new car was $15,500. Bill Clinton was president of the United States in 1995. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, who were angry at the United States government concerning the federal raid in Waco, Texas in 1993, detonated a truck bomb in front of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, killing 168 people, including 19 children, in an act of domestic terrorism. In another act of terrorism, a religious cult released sarin gas into a subway system in Tokyo, Japan, killing 13 people with over 5,000 people being sent to the hospital. After occupying the pop culture zeitgeist for a couple of years, the original O.J. Simpson murder trial ended with a not guilty verdict. He would later be convicted in a civil trial and would 
also spend years in jail for robbery and assault a few years later. An earthquake in Russia killed over 2,000 people. Another earthquake in Kobe, Japan, killed 6,433 people. A heat wave in the Midwestern United States killed over 3,000 people. In Chicago alone, that same heat wave killed over 750 people as temperatures hit over 104 degrees for five straight days. The Ebola virus killed 244 people in Zaire, Africa. A volcano almost wiped out the island of Montserrat. Israeli Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin was assassinated by a far-right-wing Israeli. Quebec held a referendum on independence from Canada. It was narrowly defeated. A peace treaty was reached between Bosnia, Serbia, and Croatia, but not before the Bosnian Serbs gained control of Srebrenica and killed over 7,000 Muslim men and raped hundreds of Muslim women. Steve Fawcett became the first man to fly across the Pacific Ocean in a hot air balloon. A stock securities broker for the Barings Bank investment firm lost $1.4 billion speculating on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, which led to Barings Bank collapsing. Famous people who were born in 1995 include models Kendall Jenner and Gigi Hadid, YouTube star Logan Paul, actors Timothy Chalamet, Victoria Pedretti, Nick Robinson, Shamik Moore, football players Patrick Mahomes, Ezekiel Elliott, and Deshaun Watson, and Baker Mayfield, basketball players Andrew Wiggins and Nikola Jokic, the Joker, and gymnasts Gabby Douglas and Michaela Maroney. Famous people who passed away in 1995 include actors Elizabeth Montgomery, Roxy Roker, Mae Wicks, Dean Martin, Ginger Rogers, Burl Ives, Lana Turner, Donald Pleasance, Ava Gabor, fashion gurus Paola and Maurizio Gucci, Painter Bob Ross, gangster Ronald Cray, serial killer Fred West, British Prime Minister Harold Wilson, Indian Prime Minister Marahi Desaya, baseball player Mickey Mantle, writer James Harriet, the man who came up with the polio vaccine, Mr. Jonas Salk, matriarch of the Kennedy family, Rose Kennedy, Sportscaster Howard Cosell, entrepreneur Orville Redenbacher, and ballet dancer and actor Alexander Goodenough. The Nobel Peace Prize was shared between Joseph Roblat from Poland and the Pugwash Conferences on Science and World Affairs from Canada for their work in trying to eliminate nuclear arms. United States Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, and Brad Pitt was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive for the first time. In technology, JavaScript was used for the first time in 1995 along with Java 
Windows 95, Alta Vista, and Internet Explorer were released in 1995. What else happened in 1995? little company called eBay started. DVDs were first introduced to the general public. IBM released the ThinkPad 701C, also first used in 1995, the MQ-1 Predator Drone. In video gaming, the first Electronic Entertainment Expo, otherwise known as E3, was held in Los Angeles, California. BioWare, the gaming company, started in 1995. The Nintendo Ultra 64, which got a shortened name to the Nintendo 64, made its debut at the Nintendo Space World Software Exhibition, while Nintendo announced in that same time that it would stop making its NES console in America. The Virtual Boy 32-bit console was sold in Japan, then was discontinued later that year. Also being released that year were the Sony PlayStation and the Sega Saturn consoles. As far as popular games of 1995, well, those went to Command & Conquer, Tekken 2, Twisted Metal, Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, Virtua Fighter 2, Doom, Wolfenstein 3D, Donkey Kong Island, Panzer Dragoon, Chrono Trigger, NBA Jam Tournament Edition, Mortal Kombat number 3, Justice League Task Force, and Judge Dredd. In books, there were bestsellers by John Grisham, Michael Crichton, Daniel Steele, Stephen King, Mary Higgins Clark, and The Horse Whisperer by Nicholas Evans. On the nonfiction side, there were bestsellers by General Colin Powell, Howard Stern, Bill Gates, Deepak Chopra, Nelson Mandela, Carl Sagan, Greg Louganis, Charles Kuralt, Ellen DeGeneres, William J. Bennett, Newt Gingrich, O.J. Simpson, who wrote about the infamous double murder, which was really insulting to the victims of the murder, and Barack Obama. Yes, that Barack Obama. To be fair, though, Obama's book Dreams of My Father wouldn't actually be a huge seller until a decade later once people began to know who he was outside of Chicago politics. In movies, Toy Story came out in 1995 and became the biggest movie of the year. Also out in 1995 were Die Hard with a Vengeance, Apollo 13, GoldenEye, Tank Girl, Bad Boys, A Goofy Movie, Friday, Crimson Tide, Pocahontas, Batman Forever, Species, Dangerous Minds, Mortal Kombat, The Usual Suspects, Showgirls, Dead Presidents, Leaving Las Vegas, The American President, Casino, Money Train, Heat, Waiting to Exhale, Judge Dredd with Sylvester Stallone on this one, Seven, Casper, Waterworld, and the original Robin Williams version of Jumanji. At the Academy Awards, Braveheart won the Oscar for Best Picture. The other winners that year would 
later faced public scrutiny for a variety of reasons. Mira Sorvino won Best Supporting Actress for Woody Allen's Mighty Aphrodite. Kevin Spacey, in the meantime, won Best Supporting Actor for Seven. Both would end up on opposite sides of the hashtag MeToo movement. Mira was one of the women who helped to bring down Harvey Weinstein, while Kevin would end up being accused by multiple men of attempted sexual assault. Nicolas Cage won Best Actor for Leaving Las Vegas, but would lose millions of dollars because of excessive spending. And Susan Sarandon, who won Best Actress for Dead Man Walking, would be taken to task later on for her political views, while Mel Gibson, who won Best Director for Braveheart, would be chastised in the public eye for various problems, including alcoholism and making racist remarks, among other things. The Postman won Best Movie Score, and Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas won Best Song. In sports... The San Francisco 49ers won the Super Bowl, which was held for the 1995 season in 1996 in Tempe, Arizona. The halftime show that year was a salute to 30 years of the Super Bowl with Diana Ross. The Nebraska Cornhuskers won the college football championship. In baseball, a player strike ended after 232 days. The California Angels blew a 13-game lead to the Seattle Mariners in their division, and then Seattle forced a one-game playoff game against the Angels, which the Mariners won. That also became one of the biggest chokes in baseball history, next to virtually every other choke that the Boston Red Sox have ever pulled. Sorry, I, I actually say that as a Red Sox fan, so, you know. Ugh. The pain is bitter. Eventually, though, the Atlanta Braves won the World Series. All of that was eclipsed that year by the feel-good sports story of the year, which was Cal Ripken Jr. breaking Lou Gehrig's consecutive games played streak of 2,130 games played. In basketball, the Yukon Huskies women's team had an undefeated season and won the NCAA Women's College Basketball Tournament. Meanwhile, UCLA won the NCAA Men's College Basketball Tournament, while the Houston Rockets won the NBA Championship. Michael Jordan would come back to play basketball in March after having retired in 1993 to play baseball. Miguel Indurain won the Tour de France. In the Triple Crown races, Thunder Gulch won the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont Stakes, but lost the Preakness Stakes, thereby not winning the Triple Crown. In hockey, the New Jersey Devils won the Stanley Cup. Ben Crenshaw won the Masters Golf Tournament, but the year was also the first time that the average sports fan had probably ever heard of the kid who won the U.S. Amateur Championship in 1995, Tiger Woods. In other majors, John Daly won the British Open, Corey Pavin won the U.S. Open, and Steve Elkington won the PGA Championship. For the women, Nancy Bowen won the Nabisco Dinah Shore Tournament, Kelly Robbins won the LPGA Championship, 
Annika Sorenstam won the U.S. Women's Open, and Jenny Lidbach won the Du Maurier Classic. In tennis, Andre Agassi won the Australian Open, Thomas Muster won the French Open, and Pete Sampras won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. On the women's side, Steffi Graf won every major tournament except for the Australian Open. That one went to Mary Pierce. In auto racing, Jacques Villeneuve won the IndyCar Series, Jeff Gordon won his first NASCAR championship, and Michael Schumacher won the Formula One championship. In television, the History Channel debuted in 1995, as did the Golf Channel, ESPN Classic, the Outdoor Life Channel, and Xena, Warrior Princess. The O.J. Simpson trial coverage, though, took over everyone's TV screens that year. The top 10 shows for 1995 were ER, Seinfeld, Friends, Caroline in the City, Monday Night Football, The Single Guy, Home Improvement, Boston Common, 60 Minutes, and NYPD Blue. At the Emmy Awards, Frasier won Best Comedy, and NYPD Blue won Best Drama. In music, the Beatles Anthology TV documentary aired in 1995, along with the premiere of their first song, quote-unquote, in over 20 years, called Free as a Bird. Michael Jackson released what became the biggest-selling double album of all time worldwide, History. Singer Robbie Williams left the boy band Take That and Girls, now probably your parents, lost their ever-loving minds because of it. Seriously, they had to open up helplines to help these girls. It was a wild time. Artists who were born in 1995 include Kim Tate-Young and Jimin of BTS. Also, Megan the Stallion, Doja Cat, Melanie Martinez, Lil Uzi Vert, Dua Lipa, Ross Lynch of R5, Post Malone, Queen Nija, Troy Sivan, Jisoo Kim of Blackpink, A Boogie with the Hoodie, Michael Clifford of Five Seconds of Summer, Kehlani, and Poppy. Lead singer Shannon Hoon of the alternative band Blind Melon passed away from a drug overdose. Tejano singer Selena was murdered. Grateful Dead lead singer Jerry Garcia passed away. Other musical artists who passed away in 1995 include Melvin Franklin, Rory Gallagher, Easy e Bobby DeBarge, Teresa Tang, Charlie Rich, Phyllis Hyman, Lola Flores, and Nike Ardia. Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill was the biggest-selling album of 1995. Other big albums that were released in 1995 were Mariah Carey's Daydream, Queen's Made in Heaven, Shania Twain's The Woman in Me, No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom, Jules' Pieces of You, The Waiting to Exhale soundtrack, Bruce Springsteen's Greatest Hits, Radiohead's The Bends, Oasis with What's the Story, Morning Glory, Tupac's Me Against the World, Bjork's Post, The Smashing Pumpkins' Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. 
Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise was the best-selling song of the year, followed by TLC's Waterfalls and Creep. Seal's Kiss from a Rose, Boys to Men's On Bended Knee, Real McCoy's Another Night, Mariah Carey's Fantasy, Madonna's Take a Bow, Monica's Don't Take It Personal, and Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It. Alanis's Jagged Little Pill won Album of the Year at the Grammys for the music of 1995. Also at the Grammys, Seal's Kiss from a Rose won Record and Song of the Year, while Hootie and the Blowfish won Best New Artist. At the Eurovision Singing Contest that was held in Dublin, Ireland, Secret Garden from Norway won for the song Nocturne. At the Tony Awards, Sunset Boulevard won Best Musical, and Showboat won Best Revival of a Musical. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opened its museum in Cleveland, Ohio in 1995. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, music journalist Paul Ackerman was inducted into the non-performers category. The Orioles were inducted into the early influencers category. And in the performers category, the Hall inducted the Allman Brothers Band, Frank Zappa, Martha and the Vandellas, Janis Joplin, Neil Young, the Reverend Al Green, and this next group. In 1968, the Yardbirds were on their last legs. They played what they thought was their last gig in July and then realized that they still had a few concerts that they were contractually obligated to play in Sweden, Switzerland, Denmark, and the Netherlands. Half of the band was already on to other projects, so they authorized the remaining members to get new members, but to use the name the Yardbirds when performing. Guitarist Jimmy Page and bassist Chris Dreja went looking for a lead singer and found one in Terry Reed. Terry, however, said no and said instead to try a guy by the name of Robert Plant. Plant said yes, and since the group still needed a drummer, he brought John Bonham on board. Dreja then decided to quit to become a photographer, yet another in the Pete Best Award categories for leaving a band before it became popular. Anyway, Dreja would pop up later in the band story, but in a not-so-good way, as you will see. Bassist John Paul Jones, meanwhile, came to the band and asked to join, so with that lineup in hand, they went off and did the final gigs as the new Yardbirds. Once they were done playing their original gigs, they decided to keep going as a group and record an album together. They recorded and mixed the album at Olympic Studios in London in October of 1968. The reason why it didn't take them too long to record the album, according to Jimmy Page at least, 
was that most of the songs had already been tested and rehearsed during the tour in Scandinavia. Page covered the costs of the studio, which may have also been another reason why it only took him 36 hours of studio time to record the album. Then, with the album in hand, they went shopping for a record deal. They had the upper hand in negotiations, and they knew it. They negotiated a sweet deal with Atlantic Records, which gave them copyright control and control over every aspect of publicity. They released the album on January 12, 1969 to not-so-good reviews, much like most albums that become classics. Also, like many classics, it didn't matter what the critics said about the album to the public. The public loved it. It became a huge hit. The critics would eventually come around. In fact, Rolling Stone magazine, who originally hated the album, eventually made it their 29th greatest album of all time. Just goes to show you, don't listen to the critics. There was just one problem. The band's name. They were going to go out on tour with the name the New Yardbirds, but received a cease and desist order from former member Chris Dreja. Told you he'd be back. The band would get their new name, according to whichever legend you want to go with, from either, say, Bob Dylan or members of The Who or whoever who said that the band would go over like a Led Zeppelin. Well, that was wrong. That album, by the way, would go on to sell over 10 million copies and go top 10 in five countries, including America. The album that had the now classics Good Times, Bad Times, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, Dazed and Confused, I Can't Quit You Baby, and Communication Breakdown was called Led Zeppelin 1. Led Zeppelin II was heavier, and according to the band, was when the group really started playing well. The mastermind behind the album this time was, of course, Jimmy Page. He made sure everybody stayed on track. The album was written and recorded while the band was on tour between April and August of 1969. Robert Plant, in retrospect, wasn't too thrilled with that due to some of the recording studios that they were forced to record in while on tour. The album was released on October 22nd of that year, and the only officially released single from the album was the first song, Whole Lot of Love. That song, either its wailing guitar, thumping bass, Robert Plant's demanding vocals, all backed up by John Bonham's masterful drumming, set the tone for the rest of the album. The one problem with the song concerns the lyrics. Some of them were actually lifted from blues greats Willie Dixon's song, I Need Love. The group was sued and had to settle out of court on that one, which makes you wonder about their current problems with Stairway to Heaven and that plagiarism lawsuit that finally got taken care of. And even though Whole Lot of Love was the only released single, other songs from the album have made the lexicon of classic radio streaming services everywhere, like the Lemon song Ramble On and Moby Dick, which all get regular rotation on the radio these days. As far as the album went chart-wise, 
it did really well. It went top 10 in 11 different countries, number one in seven of them, including America. Now, when Led Zeppelin III came out, it performed okay, but the critics, again, were at best lukewarm to the album, much like they were with Led Zeppelin I and II. For the fourth album, they decided not to even call it Led Zeppelin IV. They simply put two four symbols on the album's cover. The guys decided not to do any more touring and to concentrate on recording. They went to the English countryside to a place called Headley Garage. They also took a mobile recording studio with them and got down to business with Jimmy Page back at the helm. The mobile studio was actually good for capturing ideas while they jammed together. Plus, there was no pub near the country studio, so they didn't have their usual distractions. The album had their customary two officially released singles. As with every Led Zeppelin album, all of the songs became hits. Black Dog was named after a black dog that used to hang around the studio and was actually the first single released. Rock and Roll was also released as a single and came out of one of those jam sessions. The Battle of Evermore was based on the Scottish Independence Wars. Stairway to Heaven is also known as the DJ Bathroom Break song because of its length, which clocks in at somewhere hovering around 10 minutes or so. It was also part of a lawsuit that was filed by another group named Spirit who claimed that the beginning of the song was stolen from them. That was settled by the Supreme Court, which actually held in favor of Led Zeppelin. Misty Mountain Top was about cops, student protesters, and drug possession, and the title was based on J.R.R. Tolkien. Four Sticks is based on a drum pattern that John Bonham did. Going to California was actually about California earthquakes. And When the Levee Breaks was actually first recorded in 1929. When Led Zeppelin IV was released on November 8, 1971, it had already been delayed. The album that was supposed to come out in April of that year went straight to number one in America and top ten in eight other countries. It sold over 16 million certified copies in America, making it one of the biggest-selling albums of all time. In total, Led Zeppelin released eight studio albums and four live albums until they disbanded after the sudden death of John Bonham from alcohol intoxication in 1980. Led Zeppelin has sold over 300 million records worldwide, with 111.5 million of those being sold in America alone, and four of those albums sold over 10 million copies each in the United States. Their albums have consistently been put on many a best-of list, including all the albums I just mentioned. They have been labeled the greatest rock and roll band of all time, and four of their albums have been put into the Grammy Hall of Fame. They were inducted into the UK Music Hall of Fame in 2006,
1995, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame did the honors. Inducted by Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith, themselves inductees in 2001, Led Zeppelin inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 1995. Normally, I make the case for putting someone into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the performers category. This time, though, I'm going to make the case for putting someone into the hall in the non-performers category. The sad thing is that I have to make the case for him because he should have been in the hall a long time ago. And I now have to beat the drum for a man who was important to R&B, dance, funk music, and overall... The African-American culture. Dick Clark hosted the teen dance show American Bandstand for over three decades, and during that time he turned many recording artists into stars, and sometimes while profiting from their recordings. Hence his involvement in the payola scandal that took down Cleveland DJ Alan Freed. For Clark's efforts and influence, He was inducted into the Hall in 1993. His R&B counterpart, however, has not been. Don Cornelius was the host and creator of the TV show Soul Train. The show, which ran for 35 years, was as much a part of black America as Ebony and Jet magazine back in the day. It helped disco to gain a wider audience. It helped make stars out of the Jackson 5 and a lot of other acts. And even white artists who were savvy enough to show up gained a wider audience, like Tina Marie, Sheena Easton, and Elton John, just to name a few. The show gave the world the Soul Train line dance, the spelling board, and of course those fabulous Soul Train dancers. That was all due to host Don Cornelius, who gave us peace, love, and soul. And yet, for all his efforts and influence, he gets no love from the Hall voters. That is shameful, because if you let a guy like Dick Clark in, who was part of the payola scandal, then you absolutely have to let Don Cornelius in into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a non-performer. In 1928, the Fort Worth and Denver South Plains Railway Depot opened at 1801 Crickets Avenue in Lubbock, Texas. By the 1990s, the railway had long since moved out and the building was not in use. It was bought in 1996 by the city of Lubbock since the city needed a space to showcase some memorabilia that it received from the estate of its favorite son. In 1999, the depot reopened under the name of its favorite son, the Buddy Holly Center. 
The center has lots of memorabilia and exhibits about Buddy's life. It also has art galleries. Your ticket price includes free admission to the art gallery, by the way. General admission is $8, senior citizens 60 and over paying $6, and students with an ID, kids 6 and under, museum members, and active duty military paying absolutely nothing to come visit. The center is normally open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and on Sundays from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. The center is closed on Mondays, holidays, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, But, as always, check with the regulations and the website for updated restrictions and hours. As we all know, everything changes now because of COVID. BuddyHollyCenter.org, by the way, is their website. That's B-U-D-D-Y-H-O-L-L-Y-C-E-N-T-E-R dot O-R-G. There are certain dates that get immortalized in the national consciousness for one reason or another. Most times they have to do with tragic events. November 22, 1963, for instance, which was John F. Kennedy's assassination. September 11, 2001, which was the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The January 6, 2021 insurrection on the United States Capitol. Some get immortalized in song. April 4th, 1968, which was Martin Luther King's assassination, was the basis for U2 with their song, Pride in the Name of Love. Don McLean's song, American Pie, immortalized the loss of innocence after this next tragic event. Charles Hardin Holly was one of the pioneers of rock and roll. Nicknamed Buddy, he was born and raised in Lubbock, Texas, and played guitar as a kid. Like a lot of musicians back in the day, Holly was heavily influenced by country, gospel, and R&B music. He started playing on local TV shows and actually opened up for Elvis Presley. That was the point when he decided to go into music full-time. He recorded for Decca Records, but wasn't happy with them, so he recorded a demo for producer Norman Petty, who ended up becoming Buddy Holly and the Crickets' manager. It was through Petty that Holly recorded That'll Be the Day with his band, the Crickets, as luck would have it. He released the album Chirping Crickets in late 1957. Over the next couple of years, he toured all over the country, along with Australia and Great Britain. In the late 1950s, rock and roll was beginning to gain steam, and acts started touring across the United States. By this time, Buddy had hit it big with songs like Peggy Sue. His act started out as Buddy Holly and the Crickets, But he broke up with his backup band in late 1958 and was in need of a new band for a new tour. He got future country superstar Waylon Jennings, along with Tommy Alsup, Carl Bunch, and Frankie Sardo. They dubbed the tour the Winter Dance Party Tour. They were going to play 24 cities in 24 days. Along to support the tour were Dion and the Belmonts, 
J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper, who had a hit song at the time called Chantilly Lace, and Richie Valens, who was getting hot off of songs like La Bamba and Donna. There were problems with the tour from the start. Their performances were fine, but the fact was that it was a tour in the Midwest in the middle of winter, and it was a pretty bad winter that year. Their tour buses were actually old school buses, and the heat broke down on them a lot, and band members started to catch the flu. The tour started on January 23rd in Wisconsin. By the time the tour hit Clear Lake, Iowa, Holly had had enough with the buses. As it were, Clear Lake wasn't on the original tour list, but they had an open date and the buses had driven over 350 miles just to get there. So Holly decided that he was going to charter a plane for the next stop, which was Fargo, North Dakota. The manager of the Surf Ballroom, the place where they were playing that night, called the Dwyer Flying Service to charter a single-engine Beechcraft 35 Bonanza plane with a pilot named Roger Peterson. The plane could only fit three people plus the pilot. So, not everybody on the tour, for obvious reasons, could fit. There has been some discrepancy as to exactly how the events went down as to how people were chosen for the flight, especially after Dion DiMucci, the Dion and Dion and the Belmonts, changed up the story a little bit in an interview not that long ago. I'm going to go with the common story as it is known and was portrayed in the Richie Valens movie La Bamba starring Lou Diamond Phillips. Originally, it was supposed to be Holly, Jennings, and Alsup on the flight. However, Richardson, the big bopper, had the flu and asked Jennings if he could take the seat. Jennings said yes, and when Holly found out about it, he good-naturedly kidded with Jennings, saying, quote, I hope your old bus freezes up, end quote. To which Jennings kidded, quote, well, I hope your old plane crashes, end quote. That phrase haunted Jennings for the rest of his life. As far as how Valens ended up on that flight, he asked to trade with Alsop. Alsop didn't want to give it up, so the two decided on a coin toss. Valens won the coin toss. After the concert, Holly, Richardson, and Valens were driven out to the airfield and boarded the plane. The weather going to Fargo that night was getting bad, but apparently the pilot, Peterson, never got those updates to the forecast. The plane took off. When the plane was supposed to do a radio check, there was no response. The air tower tried again and again. No response. The next morning, the owner of the Dwyer Flying Service took up another airplane to retrace the flight path to see what might have happened. And it was he who spotted the wreckage of the plane which had crashed into a field not long after takeoff. Buddy Holly's wife, who was pregnant at the time, found out about the plane crash via news reports and not 
from the authorities. She collapsed and later had a miscarriage. After that, a rule was adopted to not release any victims' names of an accident until relatives are notified first. Unfortunately, that did not really work when it came to Kobe Bryant's accident, as his wife Vanessa found out via social media and not through the authorities. As far as a cause for the accident, it was mainly blamed on the inexperience of Peterson, the pilot, who was only 21 at the time and hadn't had enough training, nor did the plane have the right equipment to fly in wintry conditions, at least according to authorities. The tour itself would go on, with Jennings taking over headlining duties for a couple more weeks. For a generation, though, their childhood innocence was lost that day, much like it was when Kurt Cobain died in the 1990s for the Gen X generation, like myself, or when Chester Bennington and Chris Cornell died recently for millennials. Don McLean coined the loss that day in American Pie as the day the music died and the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper that was immortalized in Don McLean's classic song, American Pie, occurred on February 3rd, 1959. And you can learn more about the short but brilliant life of Buddy Holly and view all of his memorabilia at the Buddy Holly Center at 1801 Crickets Avenue in Lubbock, Texas. And that is it for the Music Halls of Fame podcast, episode number 10. Thanks for listening. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, basically everything having to do with this podcast is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, etc., all under Music History Today. If you would like to support this podcast, our Patreon can be found at patreon.com backslash musichistorytoday. We are also on Twitter at musichistoryday. And you can now find us on YouTube. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell anytime you want to know exactly what videos are dropped and when. All of those links can be found in the show notes below. Thank you very, very much for listening.